Welcome to another edition of Against the Current, coming to you from the Skyline Club atop the Old Republic Building in downtown Chicago. Pleased to have as my guest on this edition, by way of Lakeland, Florida, by way of Wake Forest, by way of the Chicago Bears, longtime tight end for the Chicago Bears, Des Clark. Des, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Twelve years in the league. That's a long time to play. It's what four times the uh, the league average in terms of career. Absolutely. Just just for just that alone, your longevity. Most of that career, obviously, with the Bears, including the fateful NFC Championship game against the Packers. Yes. Um, including the fateful Super Bowl against the Colts. Yes. A lot of fateful. Um, how, how did you last? 12, did, how did you last twelve years? They didn't end up with wins, all of those faithful. So no, no, right? <laughs> so, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so how did I end up twelve years in the league? How'd you survive? I and, tell this when I do my motivational speaking. I got a piece of advice from one of the scouts, and he asked. He he told me, "Hey, ask yourself how good you want to be, then ask yourself how good you are, and then every single day." Practice on one thing to get better. Have one focus on one thing to get better for that day. And I believe that piece of advice led me from being a rookie on a two-time Super Bowl champion team, playing behind a Hall of Famer and two eventual Pro Bowlers, thinking I would never make it in the NFL, to reti- retiring 12 years later. And and so the one thing each day, that means like all of the disciplines that go into being an NFL tight end from pass routes to blocking to... The mental game, the physical game, I mean, little things as, hey, today I'm just going to practice, make sure that I have my footwork right. My first step is always going to be correct or my hand placement or don't make any mental errors or don't drop a pass as they just focus on catching the ball or focus on getting out of your breaks um, correctly. Just little things like that. I, I think that piece of advice helped me to get through 12 years. And now that you're removed from your playing time by a few years, you kind of, what's your... What's your perspective looking back at uh, not just how long you played, but the era in which you played from the, the late 90s to the first part of this decade um, versus where the NFL and where professional sports is now? It's changed rapidly, especially since where from where I started in 1999. Um, but even from when I retired, my last full season was 2010 to now in 2018 with the season coming up now. It's a totally different game. You have all the concussion talk. Um, The money has grown substantially. Uh, Guys are um, taking what they their popularity on the field and and doing more things off the field um, more so than than we ever did from 1999 to 2010. What's one of the things that seems to have changed in the last couple of years is the intersection or the overlap between sports and politics. Yes. Uh, you, you've seen in the NBA, LeBron James has been outspoken. Steve Kerr, the head coach of the Golden State Warriors, has been outspoken against the current President Trump and a number of issues. Um, obviously, Colin Kaepernick uh, mm-hmm. in the NFL, but he's not the only one with the whole anthem flap. The way ESPN covers sports and uh, the willingness, if not enthusiasm, for many of their anchors from former anchor Jameel Hill to Max Kellerman weighing in on politics. How has that intersection uh, of sports and politics changed since you were coming up through college and playing in the NFL? Right. There, there wasn't a whole lot of interaction between athletes and political figures, not openly, not in the, um, in the media, more so now with social media um, more than anything people are able to get their views out. I think a lot of these views have been there. 
they, they've been talked about. I know me and Greg, Greg Olson, we used to talk about politics all the time. Uh-huh. And he's a Republican, um, and I'm more lean towards Democratic. And we used to have these debates going back and forth, but they were healthy debates. They were you were flaming each other on Twitter. No, right. we, we were going back and forth, and, and we left out saying, yeah, I, I understand what you're, where you're coming from. And then I can say, I understand where you're coming from also. And me and Greg, I think because we had some of those debates, we became better friends. But in today's society, it's more, hey, let's throw venom. Let's throw venom out. Well, it's, it's, this side is all the way wrong. That side is all the way wrong. So we can't get along anywhere. I think you see a lot more than that, a lot more of that today. And I think also when you look at it, politicians are also weighing in on the sports things a little bit more than they probably had in the past also. So now you got both sides kind of escalating, you know, politics into sports and sports into politics. And there's no wrong or right to it. I think uh, if you have a voice and you think that you can – bring about positive change, you should do that. Um, but you have to be careful because now in today's society with social media and, and things like that, everybody has an opinion. And some of those opinions just get misconstrued and and then you have something that started off going you know, straight down the middle and now it's going right, left, and all different directions. What, what do you think about uh, how the NFL has handled and in individual teams, including the Bears, have handled the uh, controversy over uh, standing or kneeling for mm-hmm. the anthem? Um, I think that the NFL, you know, we should have went back to what was it about. And it wasn't about the flag. And it all turned about, hey, this is something about the national anthem and the flag. And that's what I mean about when you know, something's going straight down the middle, then it, it got taken left left and right. I think the NFL should have did a better job of saying, hey, this is not about a protest of our national anthem, um, and tried to bring everybody back to square one, and then started from there. Because I think everybody can agree on square one about some of the injustices that was going on, and then start try to restart the conversation from there, but it got out of hand. So no matter what the NFL does, no matter what President Trump say, no matter what anybody says, nobody's going to be right because nobody is really focused on the main critical issue that started all of this. When you were uh, playing, did you look to any contemporary, maybe not in football, but in, in other sports and, and watch like how they handled some of the hot button issues that people try and drag them into? Uh, Tiger Woods was recently, you know, there was a reporter tried to drag Tiger Woods into into criticizing Trump, and he basically just said, "Look, I play golf with him. I play golf with Obama too. Uh, you know, I'm I'm tired. I just completed the this final round of this tournament. I just want to go get something to eat." And he just wouldn't take the bait. Uh, I don't remember Michael Jordan, for example, in Chicago. And there's a lot of things to weigh in in Chicago all the time. Right. He never really allowed himself to get dragged in there. He's very protective of his brand, and I guess focused on his work. Um, is any, any you know kind of somebody that you look to and said? There's somebody who's doing it right. Um, no, I, I never really looked up to athletes as quote unquote role models. I looked up to them and I admired them. Yeah. And but my thing was my role model was somebody who I could reach out and touch, who I could talk to on a daily basis. So those are the people that I look looked up to. 
Um, but somebody who did it right, I mean, there's, I think that's one of the issues that we have. Everything has to be right or wrong. Um, what's right to you may not be right to me. What's wrong to me may not be wrong to you, vice versa. Everybody is a product of their environment. Everybody has their own way that they look at things. Instead of trying to say what's right or wrong, let's try to say, okay, how can we understand where this person is coming from? And if, if we don't get to that place, it's always going to be right or wrong instead of understanding. Um, I could understand where Kaepernick is coming from. I could also understand where um, some some the troops are coming from because of what they had to go through to fight for our freedom. But no one is trying to understand the other side. And that's where I believe that the issue comes in. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say right or wrong or, or blame or this or that. It, it has to come down to understanding it and, and knowing what that person where that person come from and how they are viewing whatever issue that's at hand. Did you guys ever lean on or did you ever lean on, you know, previous icons uh, around the locker room, whether it was the Bears or other football players? I mean, um, it, somebody that I always, I'm always interested to hear what he has to say from the world of sports. Sometimes I agree with it. Sometimes I don't. But uh, Jim Brown, mm-hmm. obviously the Cleveland Browns, great, one of the greatest running backs ever. You know, he's been active in... Uh, social commentary, social movement, trying to improve urban neighborhoods since he was playing in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And um, and the, one of the reasons I am interested to hear what he has to say is because he's an independent thinker. He's not trying to, flat, to fly anybody's partisan banner, really, sort of outcome-focused. Mm-hmm. So it's about, you know, this is what the problem is. If this is a creative way to address it that generates results, then I'm interested in hearing about it. And if it's not, then we need to move a different direction. And so to me, he's somebody that I think sort of has been a good ambassador for uh, a sports icon in the world of policy and politics, uh, adding value. Right. Um, I would say, you know, self-admittedly, I'm not uh, a political follower. Um, I don't tune into a whole lot of things that's going on politically. Um, but for a guy like Jim Brown, yeah, you, you take notice when a guy like Jim Brown, um, even a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, yeah. I, I remember back yeah. when I was young, I remember him speaking out on some social issues. Uh, so, But from my time in playing in the NFL, I guess there were not as many hot-button topics um, in those 12 years that we really said, hey, we need to sit down and have a round table and discuss Hey, how, how do we address these issues? There were small things, but not not like today where, you know, things are so divided that, hey, you, you, you got you to gotta take a stance. And I feel like today there are so many different issues and athletes have so much more influence now. It, some of them feel like I have to take a stance. Yeah, I think that's interesting, right? I mean, it's, it's a more, I think that that's explains it. And, and sports is sort of a microcosm of the culture as well as a contributor or detractor from it. And so why would professional athletes, the distribution of professional athletes, be any different than the distribution of the populace? You have some people over here and some people there and some people that sort of don't pay attention or don't want to be forced into taking stances. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of distributed among athletes the same way it's distributed among Absolutely. the population. Yeah. 
So I think people would be interested to hear, you know, what you're doing since your playing career. I mean, one of the things, and we talked a little bit about it off camera, is, you know, these stories and the cautionary tales of guys who made millions, tens of millions of mm -hmm. dollars, and within a couple of years, their playing days in the NBA and baseball and the NFL, they're, they're broke or they're in financial trouble. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, historic flameouts. Um, and so, uh, you know, what, what that conversation is like in professional circles when you guys are playing. And then also, and so fast forward and bring us to present in terms of what you've been doing since you stopped playing. Okay. Um, so that whole broke series that came out with ESPN. Yes, exactly. That kind of flamed the, 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 the fire of, hey, why are athletes not in a better posi position once they get retired? And that came after my retirement. Um, but as we were, as I was going through my playing days, um, I look back on people like Rod Smith, uh, Denver Bronco. He was one of the guys who, um, Rod speaks his mind, and it's not always in a um, nice, political, uh, politically correct language. Um, he was one of the guys that I always listened to. Um, you have guys in the locker room that are very, very intelligent, and they understand how to, hey, this is the position I am, but I could take this position and leverage it to get to a higher position. Rod was one of those people. Now you have more people in a locker room that never had the access before. They never had a check for $100,000, uh, $1 million, $2 million, $10 million, and now you know you see Mac guaranteed, what, $90 million. Right. Yeah. So to have the level of sophistication to know how to manage that and know what to do with it and how to use it for the proper reasons of first taking care of your family and your your kids and your kids kids you know uh, 95 98 percent of the people that come through any type of situation don't understand how to properly manage that type of um, wealth so you're going to have guys that are not um, going to do well with it now that that's not an excuse but not going to learn how to how to manage it so that's where now what i'm doing i'm i'm in the financial world now as a financial advisor, and I know that there's a lack of education coming into that type of wealth. These guys are 21, 22, NBA 19, 20. What were we all doing at 19, 20, 21 years old? But now there has to be some accountability, not only on the athlete's part, but guys like myself who, who's been taken for $750,000 and, and scammed and, and lost out on you know a chunk of money that could have put me well ahead of where I'm at now. Um, to go back and educate these the players that's coming in now saying hey let's just take a minute and just listen just sit down listen and let somebody put you on the right track I think that ESPN piece although it, it, it exposed a lot of um, athletes it also helped push the conversation forward for the athletes that's coming in now saying I'm not going to be one of those ESPN 30 for 30 stories and I think more athletes now you heard you um, probably heard Saquon Barkley. He's not spending any of his yeah. contract money. He's spending all of his um, endorsement money. And once you start hearing that more, and, and and the guys knowing what the other guys before them how they squandered millions, I think they'll get smarter over time. But it's going to take them to be accountable and and people like myself and and the people who are in their quote unquote corner to educate them on how to manage that type of money. And not to, you know, 
to to pick at a scab, but since you brought it up, mm -hmm. the seven hundred fifty thousand dollars that you were scammed out of, what happened? Yeah. So, um, ah, I just got chills, man. <laughs> I know. Yes, because do we it, need to get Kleenex here? Is no, this gonna no, be, no, no, no. You be may cheerful? have to, No, you may have to get like. <laughs> I may start sweating because I still get kind of hot and bothered by this. I would too, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and the reason why I get hot and bothered is because the first thing I was going to say, man, how can somebody come sit in your house, have dinner with your family twice, look look your wife and kids in the eyes, and know that they're scamming you the whole time? Yeah. That's basically what this guy did. And he was introduced to not only me, but uh, it was about six guys in the Bears locker room and about 30 to 40 guys across the NFL that um, all got taken for different amounts of money. He, he came in, and this was 2007, um, and just like any other scam, it starts out really, really good. Mm -hmm. um, the first deal was going well. I, I put $300,000 in the first deal. So about a year went by, and now the second deal, I put another 450000 in that deal. And then, of course, 2008 happens. And it's 2000, it's, it's the end of 2008, and now the checks are not coming in like they were. And we talked about having a level of sophistication and knowing, hey, what you should be looking for in a contract and what should be red flags. You know, I'm a fairly intelligent guy. I, you know, went to Wake Forest, I graduated, I, I had a 36 on the one lick test, 35 on the one lick test, which is one of the highest grades for an NFL player. <laughs> um, um, but you know that that was a new concept to me so I didn't know what to look for yeah and now going back on it the thing that was the red flag was we guarantee x percent guaranteed return guaranteed yeah so my my attorney he reached out to me and said hey what you know what are you investing your money in so I got this 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 and you know seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars here Send it all to me. Let me just check it out because I um, just want to make sure that everything is okay. Yeah. Two days later, he called back and he was just interested in that deal that had the seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in it. It's like something doesn't look right right here. So it was um, maybe March, April, two thousand nine, and he was like, "You need to start pulling your money out of there. I don't trust this." And when we started trying to pull money out, guess what? There was no money to. There pull was out. no money to pull out. It was a Ponzi scheme. Basically, yes. And, and I mean, this is like a small version of Madoff, right? Yes. I mean, so, you know, he gets one NFL player, knows you guys talk. So, I mean, mm -hmm. if Dez is investing, then I guess it's a good deal. He's probably vetted it. So the next guy invests and then it just builds on right. itself until it collapses. That's exactly what it was because um, one of the guys um, actually played tight end. He introduced it to me and, and all the other guys. He got taken also. Um, but, yeah, it's like, all right, my, my guy, he's in it. Yeah. So, right. yeah. Of course, I'll, I'll entertain it. Right. Oh, guaranteed? Yeah, let's do this. And now, knowing what I know now, I've been in the financial industry, anybody guaranteeing you anything, yeah, you might as well just push the paper back and, and get up from the table. But has the financial literacy that the league or an individual teams provides changed since you were playing? I mean, what does, what does the NFL or the Bears, for example, what do they do in terms of bringing in people to educate young men about managing this 
money that they've just come up on. You're trying to get me in trouble, right? Well, <laughs> no, maybe I'm just say, you know, is it, is it, are they doing enough or should they now be bringing no. guys like you I mean, back who are financial advisor, uh, you know, financial advisor and expert in the space to tell your tale and also say, this is, these are the things you got to right. do to set yourself up. Last time I spoke about NFL, <laughs> I got all these headlines. Desmond Clark is rolling against the NFL doctors and stuff like that. So, um, but just transparently. a good company. Ditka does it all the time. Hey, and, and I'm number two to Ditka and all tight yeah. as that. So <laughs> yeah, right. that's a good company to be yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. there you go. But being transparent parent and honest, no, they, they don't do a good job of educating players. Like, look, in the NFL, the Chicago Bears, the NFL, they want you there to play football, um, the NFL especially. Now, like I said before, you got to separate some of the individuals from the business. Their business is the product that they put on the field. Right. Their business is not making us into successful people. Now, there's individuals within the building that want us to be successful. The business of the NFL could give a damn if we're successful as individuals. So they put on these workshops and, and you go through a symposium and things like that. But it's like, um, it's not really anything with any depth. It's, it's kind of, hey, so we did this, so we got that out of the way. We, we've educated you, now it's on you. Right, well, I mean, they're not, you know, they're not giving you the knowledge that you're ready to take your Series 7 or Series 63 to, but, my, my, but in addition to like this kind of baseline tutorial, are they doing a little bit of like quality control? Like here, I don't care who you use uh, for financial advisor, but if you want to use one, there's a list of like 200, 300, 100, whatever is pre-qualified, pre-cleared people that with a good track record that are honest and you know, you know you're not going to get scammed, something like that. Because <laughs> it seems to me one of the challenges is if you didn't come from an environment where you have friends or family members that are in those professional disciplines, then, and, and, and you know, some guys have guys that they grew up with that, you know, want to hang on to the guy with the money and, right. and the stardom. And so, you know, the recipe is obvious just to make sure that you're being surrounded with people who know what they're doing and are trustworthy. So at least in terms NFL of NFL teams don't do that. Yeah. Um, Cause just think if they recommended me to, you know, Joe Smith and Joe Smith ended up scamming me. They have all type of live, live, right. The NFL, they have a list of um, certified advisors. Um, but some of those certified advisors have also scammed individuals. Yeah. So not, is it, the, not the great uh, pre-qualifier. Right. Pre and, and, and then a guy like myself, I go in with the owner of my company and we, we, um, apply for certification and we get turned down. So I was like, wow, you got people, what's like, what's, what are you really vetting? Yeah. And nobody right. came back and. Say, okay, let me ask you some questions. Let's, you know, take you through some testing or what are you guys doing? Like, let us see what you're doing. How would you help an NFL player? None of that. It was just a form. You pay $2,500 and they tell you yay or nay. And so what's the, what's the best approach as you try to get to uh, the guys that are playing now or coming up and will be playing? And it, again, it's not limited to football. Is it, it's just uh, telling your story and, and saying, you know, here is the roadmap to, to, to chart the right course. Right. Is that basically all you can do? So, actually, we're putting a game plan together right now with my company, One Life Advisory, that we have under Mass Mutual. 
our strategy is going to be a, a whole lot different. We want to start talking to guys while they're still in college when they're juniors and seniors. And we want to start that education process not with the guys, but with the parents. Because most of the yeah. guys, they rely on the parents. But most of the guys rely on parents that's not financially literate either. So engage the whole family. Engage the whole family. Yeah. And, and start talking to them while they're, you know, uh, highly rated juniors and seniors who are projected to be in the NFL. That's the route that we're going. And, and now bringing the, the whole nucleus of, of that family into the picture and saying, hey, these are the things that you really need to be paid, paying attention to. Like save 20% of your first four years because those may be the only four years that you ever get. That's what seems to me one of the reoccur the, the, the recurring like head scratching elements of these stories is, you know, you sign a big contract, you're making a million, five million, ten million bucks a year, and you think you're gonna, you spend like you're gonna be making that forever. Right. I mean, you know, just a, it's obviously finite. Right. And then there's probably going to be a drop off because there's not a lot of things you can do where you have a skill level to make 10, go from one profession making $10 million a year to another profession making $10 million a year. Pretty difficult. Right. And it, it just seems it's not, like it's not difficult. It's, <laughs> it's near possible. It's, it's, yeah. So, so, I mean, so, but it seems, it, it seems to me like that simple, um, that simple and obvious reality doesn't take hold with a lot of guys. Well, because you always have next year. Yeah, I'll deal with it next year. Okay, if, the year if, 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 I, if I go ahead and blow this money now, you know, I'll, I'll be on the team next year. I'll make it next year. And, and uh, really, a lot of times, um, even myself, guys don't get it until they get a little bit older. Yeah, and, and sure. Because my first three years, I, I blew through all, that, all of that money. Like, and, but I wasn't making the, the millions. I think uh, my first contract was three years, $900,000. Going into my fourth year, um, yeah, all of that nine hundred thousand dollars was, I don't, I don't know where. So it took a while for me to to wise up. And really, what happened to me my fourth year in the NFL is when I had my kids, and that was like, help you okay, let yeah. me let me slow down a little bit. Let me think this thing over because now I have, you know, twin girls to to think about. So actually, for me, that was all right. Yeah. Now, I need to be smarter than what I've been these, these last three, four years. So um, it just takes some maturing because, and, and for me, it was the same thing. I'll be on the team next year. I'll make it next year. I'll make it next year. And for some people, next year doesn't come. For me, I was lucky enough to next year was I, I had 11 next years that made 12 years and um, finally got a chance to, Say, all right, you know what? This is some of the things that I need to be doing to make sure that I hold on to, to some of this money that I'm being paid right now. One of the other interesting things you're doing, sort of in the same space, like giving people, um, trying to give people an insight into how success happens. Right. right? It doesn't just happen. And um, I know you're working on a book where you're compiling stories, talking to people who have been successful, how they went from uh well, zero to one, but really one to five, how they, how they went from, you know, finding some success mm -hmm. and having a little bit of cash that they put together by working a business or, or working an investment angle and, and then blew it up. And, right. you know, we, we, it, it's interesting to me because we think about, um, you know, the millionaire and then we think about, oh, there's, you know, there's guys worth a million bucks and then there's guys with 50 and a hundred and billionaires and so forth. And so how do you go from, 
working for 20 or 30 years to get the first million to then you know multiplying that as exactly. some guys do and so you're starting to to compile some of these stories what's the the genesis of that and 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 you know how did you get interested in that one one of the things that I've I think it was my second or third year in the NFL and I don't know what made me start thinking this but I said to myself I want to make more money outside of the NFL than I do in the NFL now I didn't know I was going to play for 12 years um and I'll tell you, over my 12 years, I made a grand total of $15 million. Um, my man Khalil Mack just made six times that in one day. Right. Well, but, you should have been a better pass rusher. I, I know. Tell right. me about it. Right. Um, just the skill level wasn't there. Right. Um, but I've always been interested in the business guy. When, when people approach me, they assume that I work with um, a lot of athletes. We have some, but we actually work with more entrepreneurs. That story is appealing to me because when you're an athlete, I, I've been there, I've done that, and, and, I, and I know that story. But as an entrepreneur, they're taking something from nothing. They had an, an idea and say, okay, I'm going to take this idea and I'm going to build a company. And most people don't start out thinking that, but that's actually what they do. And, and it just intrigues me, especially in today's environment where you see more and more people want to be entrepreneurs and get out of the rat race of a nine to five. And, and what I want to do is provide a platform where people can learn from the best that that's done it. Um, and they can hear those stories of, Hey, these are all the mistakes I made getting from zero to one. These are all the things that I did to get from zero to one. And then when I got to one, this is how I got to one to five and same thing. This is what I could tell you to do, not to do. So now the young entrepreneur, and I'm not talking about just young in age, I'm just talking about just young in the number of years that they've been doing it. Now they could get past some of those bumps in the roads in the road just by hearing the stories of a person like Gary Rabine um, or Ryan Dalby or some someone like that who, you know, Gary Rabine started cutting trees with his dad and he called himself a ditch digger and he bought this crappy piece of equipment and started pay, paving driveways and so happened to be paving the driveway of a wealthy guy and say, hey, I want to learn how to make the money that you make. And that guy took him up under his wing and said, all right, this is what you need to do. And then he went from, you know, paving driveways to now he's one of, if not the biggest uh, pavement company in the world. And that story of how he went from zero to, you know, making $150, $200 million in revenue a year is fascinating to hear and it's educational for the people that, want to learn how to have that type of success. It also seems to me it's a, it, that, that storytelling is important because it gives people a perspective that Gary Rabine, just to continue that example, he didn't start where he's at. You, know, you look at Gary Rabine, you know, he's, whatever, he's got a big house, he's got this, he's got that, or anybody in his position. Oh, well, you know, he's got it easy. Like, yeah, he had like, some advantages right, or something. Yeah, yeah. right. Like that was, yeah. that was his lot in life that was preordained and, and nothing could be further from the truth and maybe gives people a little bit more respect uh, and understanding of productive risk-taking behavior, um, but understand that it was replete with danger every step of the way from yes. going from zero to one to five to 200. And, and not having his own dad to believe in him. And um, I don't know if this is a family show, but I'm going to tell you exactly what Raybine sure. um, shared with me for his interview. He, he had an opportunity to go to college on a partial scholarship for wrestling. And him and his dad, they're you know in the tree cutting business, and him and his dad's cutting the tree. And he told his dad, "Look, I have an opportunity to go to college." And his dad 
said his dad took off his glasses and looked at him and said, Rayvon, uh, Gary, you're too fucking dumb to go to college. Right. So how do you go from that to, you know, to where he's at now? And, you know, these are not my words. These, these are Gary Rayvon's words. He's a hillbilly. Yeah, that's what, I'm, I'm just a hillbilly that learned a skill and I went and I sponged off of other people that was doing it better than me at the time. I learned everything that they were doing. I, I brought it back to what I was doing and just continued to make my company better by learning from other people. Well, I think what's interesting too, particularly from you from you and your perspective, since you found success and people think professional athletes, well, they're you know gonna have a lot of swagger and braggadocia. Um, and I find you to be quite the opposite and intellectually curious too on top of it. But it's, it's the idea with respect to the entrepreneur like Ray Bine, um, in this culture as it's changing, where more and more people are uh, very ready to tell you what they deserve, mm-hmm. right? I deserve this. This shouldn't be happening. Why, you know, why this and why that? Um, it, it's illustrated. These stories illustrate, you know, the work ethic. And as yes. Milton Friedman said, you know, uh, who deserves what? Thank God we don't get what we deserve. Uh, that you take the approach of earning every step of the way. And I think maybe it would educate people who come to the table thinking that 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 uh, some sort of level in life is their birthright. Mm-hmm. I, I've done five interviews for this book so far. And that is a underlying theme for everybody that I've interviewed. I actually had a guy that dropped out of um, high school in the ninth grade. Funny story, his mom didn't know he dropped out. And she went to a teacher-parent conference or, you know, just for the school. And she found out that none of, none of his teachers knew him. <laughs> sure, that would be jarring for the parents. <laughs> and then sure. he came yeah. home and to, hey, why doesn't any of your pay, uh, teachers know you? But even that guy, he had to go back, get his GED. And he was working for DHL. And he thought that DHL could be doing a whole lot of things better than what they were doing got married, and then two months after getting married, said, you know what, I think I could do this better than DHL, and jumped out and started his own own, um, logistics company. That takes, you know, first of all, he had no business um, training, education, high school, um, GED, that's it. And he took an opportunity and a chance on himself, and he's been learning the business as he go. And he has a thriving business that's bringing in, you know, a few million dollars in revenue. But he had to work at it, and he's still working at it. So it's not, it's not what you deserve; it's what you work for. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it was exactly. And and what about on the family side too? I mean, um, the uh, with the the funeral service for Aretha Franklin uh, uh, just the other weekend. You had a, a reverend named Jasper Williams who uh, took the occasion, apparently a friend of the family, although the family was not ecstatic about. Uh, the venue he chose to offer this sermon, but he basically offered a sermon talking about um, Black Lives Matter. Well, do they matter when black people are killing black people in the streets of Chicago and Detroit and other urban centers? And talking about um, the black man having to stay with the family, that uh, young men and women can't be raised by moms alone, even heroic moms. That shouldn't be the model, effectively, is what he's saying and the importance of family structure. He's speaking specifically to the black community, but it's a conversation that transcends race mm-hmm. in this country today. Um, so what about that, especially as a father? Um, that part of the discussion about success in life too, right. meaning success in life includes abiding your responsibilities. Absolutely. 
and I'm I'm a divorced dad. Uh, my kids live in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I live in Chicago, but my number one priority is making sure that my kids are taken care of, even though I'm what a, a two-hour flight away from them and a 12-hour drive. You know, I make sure that they have what they need. I make sure that dad is not out of touch, although there's a large space in between us. Um, and because I know what I went through with my dad, and that's the story that I always tell. My dad was a, a crack addict, and it destroyed our family. Um, and I knew how much I wanted to be around my dad. I was around my dad too much. And I seen too much, and I experienced way too much with him. I was in and out of crack houses, and we'll just leave it at I seen way too much. Mm. So having that experience with my dad, said I don't want my kids to yearn for me, that they have to go through something and experience something so negative to be around me. So um, as a father, that's that's, um, my earthly number one responsibility is to be a good father to my kid and my kids and with that gap of space you know there's only so much that i could do as far as just being there with them um but um i think that men and and just even going into the black community i think it's a breakdown in the black community because there are a lack of men taking care of responsibilities. Like, look, no one say that you have to be with somebody that you don't want to be with, and I'm I'm a walking, living testament of that. But you made, and you probably didn't, whether you made the choice or it was a oops, yeah. um, you brought somebody into this world. And now it's your responsibility to make sure that those individuals that you brought into this world that you take care of and you raise the right way, you teach the right values, and you bring them up to be productive, productive people in society. My, my, my number one thing, and I talk about this a lot, I, I do a lot. I do a lot in the community. I, do, I, I just try to help people as much as I can. Um, two reasons why I do that. Because my mom died in 2015, single mom. I'm still, and I will always try to make my mom proud. And when, when I go, I want those kids of mine to say, you know what, dad made this made this place that we live a better place. And that's what I want my legacy to be far beyond anything else. And the only way I can do that is to show them how it's supposed to be done. And hopefully they will follow the example that I set for them. So the, um, the child that you had that you were describing, you know, sometimes we don't realize the big breaks when they happen in our lives. We can only realize them in retrospect, right? So what was the break for you that got you out of that environment and, you know, on your path to Wake Forest in the NFL? As far as all the stuff that I was dealing with yeah, early I mean, in life? Not, not even necessarily football, just kind of in general. What, what, what put you on a path to the success that you found? I mean, obviously, your you got to come and hear me speak. Okay, well. <laughs> I was, I actually, I told this story today. We had this uh, breakfast with the bear. My first time, instead of going outbound for a speaking engagement, I brought people to me. And that's part of my six principles of winning. And I, I'll tell you, that the, thing, the thing that springboarded me was an incident that happened with my dad. And I was walking home, and I really had to make a decision, like, which way is life going to go for me? And I got home that day. And you and were how old? About? I was 14. Okay. 
And, and I told my mom, you know, I'm going to be successful. And, you know, like all moms, she, yeah, I, I know, baby, you're going to be successful. And I was like, no, I, really, I'm going to be successful. I had no idea what success meant. But I knew I didn't want to be what I seen around me. And more so, I knew I didn't want to be what my dad had turned into. Now, my dad since recovered um, at the age of 17. He's been clean ever since I've been 17, um, since I turned 17. So 24 years now, almost 25 years. But it's amazing when you make up your mind on something, and I don't care how young you are, um, once you make up your mind and have the resolve to get it done, what you can actually get done. Because what, what was success to me? That, not going to jail? Um, it was sort of all in the negative. I, I know what I don't want to be, yeah. what I don't want to do. Yeah, right? and, and I just knew I wanted to be better than what I seen around me. And um, that was that was a turning point for me um, in my life. I'm 14 years old, and you know I always thank my coach Jays, my coach Joe, coach Joan, coach Jackson, coach Joiner, my high school and uh, middle school football and basketball coaches. Those men took me, molded me, made sure I got from place to place, stayed out of trouble, um, made sure I stayed out of trouble, and and just put instilled in me a whole lot of lessons that that's gotten me from that point until where I'm at today. All right, where he's at today is uh, a great career with the Bears, 12-year career in the NFL. Now he's a financial advisor, soon to be an author, motivational speaker, six principles of winning, yes. all the philanthropic work, the example he's setting for his kids. Chicago's a better place for having Des Clark stick around. Des Clark, thanks so much for joining us in this edition of Against the Current. Appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thanks.